This week's program is designed to teach a wayward member of the Lord's Church about their need and responsibility to return to their first love. Join Jim Dearman through two of his lessons and learn the truth before it is everlasting too late. I really want to thank you for taking the time to study God's Word with me. I know your time is valuable and, and that makes this study all the more important. There's something else I want you to know also, and that is that I have been where you are now, away from the Lord and His people, the church. You see, at one time in my life, I allowed worldly influences to overcome the godly influences I was blessed to have in my early life. But thanks to the love and patience of brothers and sisters in Christ, I came home. And I want you to know that you have those who are close to you, who love you, who want you to come home just as I came home. I'll never forget that love. I'll never forget that concern that was shown to me. I'm so grateful for it, beyond words, for that influence. And I plan to be grateful for it for all eternity because I'm, be I'm determined to finish my Christian course faithfully. And I hope and pray you'll see the importance of doing the same after we have studied together from, from God's Word. The first passage I would like to cover with you is from the book of Hebrews. It's Hebrews chapter 12, verses 4 through 13. There the writer says, You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but He for our profit, that we may be partakers of His holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. Now the writer of Hebrews begins by reminding us that we have not been killed because of our belief in God and in His ways. But he does say immediately that our parents loved us and instructed us. I know mine certainly did. And he also says that they were not persecuting us when they did, even when they punished us for doing wrong. Now with this in mind, he tells us that if they had not loved us, they would not have corrected us even if it meant punishing us in order to get us to behave. And because God is love, He tells us what we need to know, even if we sometimes don't like it or don't want to hear it. His instructions are right here in the Bible to help us live a better 
and even a more enjoyable life. But more than that, he's trying to get us to live a life that's going to get us to heaven. Yes, he wants us to be with him in eternity and not in endless punishment. The writer of this letter to the Hebrews knows that this study that we're having together at this time may not be pleasant for you. He's telling you that you have not been living your life as God would have you live it. He's telling you that you can change that. In fact, he's saying you're able to strengthen those things in your life, correct those things that need correcting. This inspired writer, nor God, nor I have given up on you. And there are others who haven't given up on you, who love you. You're just too precious for us to give up on you. Now I want us to turn to the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. This is God's great chapter on love. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 13. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, Though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. First part of this chapter is speaking to me as much as it is to you. You see, if I am here and we're having this study for any other reason than, than love, then I'm nothing. I'm the worst kind of hypocrite there is. But I am here because I love you and your soul. I am here because I believe that there's still some love, including the love of God, in you interest in spiritual things. If not, why would you allow me to have this time with you? Now verse 8, as we've read, tells us inspired prophecy, miraculous speaking in tongues, miraculous knowledge from God. They've all ended. But that which is most important has not, and that is love. At the end of this passage, God tells us that even though we do not know this life or the future perfectly, God Himself will still know you and me perfectly. Nothing about us will be hidden from God or from ourselves. We can fool ourselves. We can mislead ourselves now in this life, but not on 
judgment day. It's all going to be revealed. And when you look at verse 13, it says it all, really, for you and for me. He lists three things that exist at the time and here on earth. Faith, hope, and love. There is faith on this earth now, but the moment we die or are taken up in the judgment day, that faith will, will have become sight. We'll no longer have a faith that looks to the future because the future will be upon us. The final reality will have arrived. And the second item listed is hope. And, and it, by definition, is made up of desire, expectation, and a patient waiting. You see, to have biblical hope, you must desire to be with God in eternity. But you must also have the expectation that you will, in fact, be in eternity with God in heaven. And then you must patiently wait for your death or judgment day, if you're still alive, when that day arrives. And of course, that which is eternal is love. God is love. And God is eternal. Now we must go back and ask ourselves, if we have these three items, these three qualities in our life, if we're missing even one of the three, then heaven will not be our home. What about faith? Do we really believe God? Are we obeying the one and only system of faith that leads to heaven? What about hope? Do you now have biblical hope? Desire? Do you want to go to heaven? Do you truly want to go to heaven? What about expectation? Can you truly say you're living the life that God wants you to live, including worshiping Him in the way that He has prescribed in His Word? This means doing all that God desires you to do. And what about patient waiting? This involves living every day as if the Lord were returning that day. You see, if you're sheltering certain sins in your life, harboring those sins, not worshiping and working in the Lord's church as He wants us to do, then you're not waiting patiently. And heaven will not be your home. What about love? Pure love for God and men. The love of God that forsakes all in order to please Him. The love of our fellow man that leads us to do whatever is necessary to, to help them also go to heaven. Well, our next passage to observe is also from 1 Corinthians. It's chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians, verses 13 and 14. And there Paul writes, Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. Let all that you do be done with love. You see, these two short sentences pretty well summarize what we learned from chapter 13. Notice the word watch. You know, sometimes we do not even know we are slipping away from the truth. Our falling into sin can be quick or it can take some time. But in any case, God tells us to watch what we are doing. Watch where we are going. Watch to make sure we're staying in the old paths. And that means we must watch what we are doing and watch what others are doing and help them avoid eternal penalties. And stand fast in the faith, Paul says. It means just that. It means not to waver, not to take time off from Christianity, not even a little bit. Be brave, he says. 
You know, a, co a coward's way is to give in. It's to compromise, to bend the rules just enough so that we can enjoy a little sin for a little while. Be strong, he says. Are you being strong for yourself as well as being strong for others? God recognizes no weaklings in his family. Those who are not strong are falling from the faith if they have not already fallen. They're in a process of falling. Of course, love for God and men must be the motive behind everything we do. That's the supreme motivation. Now, let's turn over to the book of, of Colossians. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Therefore, Paul writes, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. I do not want you to lose your soul. There are others who do not want you to lose your soul. That's the reason this passage of Scripture really speaks to me as much as it does to you. You see, not only must you receive me and others who are concerned about you with tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, and long-suffering, but that's just the way we should approach you in this, your hour of need, great spiritual need. Every one of these attributes just begs you, really, to hear me and to hear my true concern for you and the concern that others have for you. We and God have been bearing with you in your struggle to be faithful to God. But there is an end to God's patience. God proved this to us in His sending Israel of old into captivity. He proved it in putting Ananias and Sapphira to death when they lied to him and to the apostles there in Acts chapter 5. And we, like this verse commands, this verse from Colossians we've read, we want to forgive you. But we cannot do what God himself will not do. Therefore, it's imperative that you get right with God. And when you do, his forgiveness is yours, and our forgiveness is yours. Again, this passage, like all of the others we've studied, shows us we can only do this in the bond of perfection. And what is that bond of perfection? Love. Jesus, in the Gospel of John, gives a new commandment to us. It's really not new in content, but in application. Let's look at John 13, 34 and 35. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Now this was a command that was in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament, but the new part of it is, as I have loved you. How is this new? It's new in that Jesus loved everyone 
for their individual good. He loves each of us enough that he wants to do anything that will help us get to heaven. In other words, he wants everything he did and does to be to our eternal good. And this to every last soul that will ever have lived on this earth. Yes, Jesus is saying, anyone in the world can see that we love you if we truly do. In fact, they will know we are his disciples, evidenced by our love for you. We want you to obey God and love us. And this will remove any doubt anyone might have, whether you are a disciple of God and Christ. You'll be showing that love to the world, to everyone around you. Now Jesus in John chapter 10 makes this amazing statement. He says, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Jesus is telling you and me that he did not come to this earth to take anything from us. On the contrary, he came to give us something, the abundant life now and forever. He came to give us eternal life, eternal spiritual life, not eternal physical life. The longer you live on this earth as a Christian, the more good deeds you will have done that are going to follow you right into heaven. If you continue to not be as faithful as you can be, then you lose that reward in heaven. Jesus has gone to prepare that place for those of us who faithfully follow him all the way to the end. Now you must ask yourself the question, am I laying up treasures in heaven or am I going to miss heaven completely? If you continue as you are right now, what will the answer be to that question? Let's stay with the words of Jesus. Notice John 14, 6 with me. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You see, the New Testament was written in the Greek language, and when Jesus spoke these words, he used a very special way to make us understand what he is saying. It's called, the, it's called an emphatic sentence, and the verse is accurately translated as, Jesus said to him, I I am the way. An emphasis there. I, I myself am the way, the truth and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except by means of me, through me. You see, by being emphatic, Jesus is saying that he alone is the way, the road, or the path. That he alone is the truth. He alone is the life. That he alone gives physical and spiritual life. If you want to be in eternity with God the Father, you must do it through or by means of Jesus. There's no other way. There's no other truth. There's no other life except in Him. Any other way, any other so-called truth or life is in fact the way of death. Right now you're lost. And the truth is no longer in you. You've left the path that leads to the Father look at your life today. Can you honestly say you, you are on God's way? Are you accepting lies for truth? Have you been rationalizing instead of repenting? Be honest with yourself. Have you lost eternal life? 
again, Jesus speaks about these same people he just spoke to in the previous verse we, we looked at. Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You see, these, these people had believed lies. They had deluded themselves into thinking they had the truth. They, they had walked the wide path that leads to destruction, that is, to hell. They were spiritually dead men who felt they were spiritually alive. And the Lord's answer is, you're sinners. I do not know you. I do not approve of you. Depart. Go away. Leave me. I don't know you and will never know you as mine if you continue to live as you're living. You think what you're doing is right, he says, but you're wrong. Let me ask you, do you feel what you are doing is right? Do you know the way you're living is wrong? Or do you feel it's what God wants? How does your life match up to the Word of God? That's the key question. Oh, God's way is not the easy way. Satan's way seems the easier way. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew 7, 13 and 14, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Jesus is clearly saying that most of the people in this world are going to take the easy way and end up tragically in hell. You see, it's not easy to get to heaven. It is the harder path. And with most of the world going to hell, you'll find little opposition if you want to go along. I really don't know of anyone who plainly states that he wants to go to hell. In fact, most do not even give it much thought. But the old adage is correct, isn't it? Actions speak louder than words. Almost all of the souls on this earth are saying by their actions that they want to go to hell, that it's, it's just too much work and too much dedication to go to heaven. Let me ask you, what are you saying? What are you saying by your actions? Are you saying you really don't want to go to heaven? There is a way out. There is a way to change your destination and to go to heaven. Listen to what the Apostle Paul writes in Titus 2, 11 through 14. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly, in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Here's a passage that shows that all must turn away from sin and practice righteousness. That is, do right. <laughs> Just do what God wants us to do.
we're going to look at today and ask the question, today, Lord, is today the day you're going to return and claim all of those who belong to you? You see, every day I should anticipate the Lord's return. Every day I should look forward to it because when He comes, life in this world, with all of its pain, death, and sin will be gone. Jesus died for you, for me. He died that our sins might be forgiven. He literally paid the final penalty for every sin man has ever committed. But he only applies that payment to those who believe and obey. Now there was a time in your life when you expressed that belief in obeying the gospel. But you've left your first love. Thanks be to God, however, there is a way back home to the Father. The Father who loves you supremely. You see, when you as a wayward child of God renew your faith, truly repent of your sins, and request God's forgiveness and that of your brothers and sisters in Christ, you have God's Word that forgiveness is yours and that fellowship is restored. What a blessing! indescribable blessing. The past is gone. You start over with a perfectly clean slate. And knowing your sins are forgiven and forgotten, how can you be anything but zealous then to do good for His sake? What is a little discomfort? What's a little ridicule from the world compared to the glories that are to be ours in heaven with God forever? How do we prove to the world that we want to go to heaven? God says we prove it by making our bodies a living sacrifice. By doing that, we'll prove to the world our commitment. We'll also prove what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God in our lives. By doing this, we also say to those in the world that God's will should be in their lives also. That's Romans 12, 1 and 2. Listen to what Paul writes there. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now notice God says that to present our bodies as a living sacrifice to Him is nothing more than our reasonable or logical service. In other words, those who take the time to study God's Word and accept it for what it is will come to a reasoned conclusion that our entire lives must be given over to God. And please take care to notice that this is a living sacrifice. It's not a dead one because life is still in us. Nonetheless, it is a total sacrifice. There's no part of our lives that we reserve for ourselves. That's right. We're God's 100%. The secret? Studying God's Word, which will renew our minds and then will cause us to refuse to be conformed to the world with all of its allurements. Jesus was the master teacher, wasn't He? He taught with brevity. Listen to this short statement of His that, that says so much. 
John 14, 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. As we said, the New Testament was written in Greek, and this is what is known as a conditional sentence, an if-then sentence, if you will. Looking into the future and seeing his church established, he makes this statement, if you love me, then at that time you will keep my commandments. In other words, for all time you will keep my commandments if you truly love me. We're in the last dispensation of the world, the era of the church, the Christian dispensation. Do you love Jesus? That is the crucial question. If you do, you're keeping His commandments. If you're not keeping His commandments, then you are plainly saying that you do not love Jesus. You see, these are the Lord's words, not mine. Jesus in the book of Revelation speaks to His church in Ephesus. Revelation 2, 4 and 5. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. In these verses, in the verses preceding these verses we've just read, Jesus commends them for many things they had done right. But then he accuses them of having lost their love for him. How can this be? Well, it's easy. We become engrossed in, in following rules and even traditions, and we forget the motivation for following the rules, the love of Him who died for us. This means that you do not need to be absolutely corrupt in order to lose your soul. He said they had fallen because of this. They had lost their first love. They were doing well in other areas, but they had lost their first love. But there is still hope. Hope for you. You who have left your first love. You must repent of your wrongdoing. You must come back to Jesus with a heart that is full of love and gratitude for Him because He's given you this opportunity to come home. And you must pray that He will forgive you. And if you come home to Him as you should with that heart full of penitence and love, He will forgive. You have His promise. If you truly love Him, if you truly repent, and you pray fervently and earnestly to Him, you will be forgiven. And heaven will be your home again. There's a man in Acts chapter 8 named Simon the sorcerer, remember? He had sinned, and Peter, with the guidance of the Holy Spirit, told him what he had to do to be right with God again. Look at the verses in Acts 8, verses 21 and 22. Peter said to him, You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. Do you notice that this is the very same thing God wanted the Ephesians to do? If He wanted the Ephesians to repent and pray, and if He wanted Simon to repent and pray, 
And that is his very same desire for you. Let me ask you, is there a better time than now to return to the Lord? I can tell you, no. <laughs> because you may not have tomorrow. Your life could end today. James in James 5.16 writes, Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. I hope that right now, it would be my fervent prayer that right now you would desire to pray fervently with those who may be with you at this time to the Father in heaven for forgiveness. And if no one is there with you, that you might contact brothers and sisters in Christ right away and say to them, I am coming home. Pray with me and for me. And then let the church as a whole know of your great decision to be right with God. Their prayers, the prayers of your brothers and sisters in Christ who love you so deeply, will avail much before God for you. You know what your sin is. You know what to do to get rid of it. I plead with you. I beg you. Do it today before it is forever too late. James writes in James 4.17, Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. We love you. We want you to be saved. We want you to be right with God again.